You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. We are doing a Messiah in the Passover demonstration this morning. Now, if you're not aware, it's actually Passover this Friday, but obviously this year, Passover and Good Friday, as we call it, Easter, coincide. They're on the same day. Usually they are not on the same day. Let me just share with you, that's one of the oddities of church history, why they're not on the same day. If you don't know, back in the 4th century, 325 AD, there was a church council called the Council of Nicaea. It was convened by, at that time, the Emperor Constantine. And most people know that council because it's where Athanasius, the church father, defended the deity of Christ against someone who was saying that Jesus wasn't God. But one of the more little-known facts about that council is also uh, huge amounts of anti-Semitism permeated the Roman Empire at that time. And the council decided that they did not want to be celebrating the death of Jesus Christ in association with the Jewish feast of Passover. Constantine's rationale, he put it in these words. It's an unworthy thing to follow the practice of the Jews who have impiously defiled their hands with enormous sin and are therefore deservedly afflicted with blindness of soul. And he continues, let us then have nothing in common with this detestable Jewish crowd. Now, most people don't know that. That is the reason why we do not celebrate Easter and Passover together. It coincides this year. Now, I'm not, I don't get hung up on dates. I'm not one of those people that gets really hung up on dates. But I do want you to understand theologically that what we celebrate over Good Friday and Easter Sunday is connected to the Jewish feasts. There's absolutely no doubt about it. That is the way that we're going to look at it this morning. One of the tragic results of this separation that has happened over the years is that it actually affects the way we read the Bible. Everything that we're going to look at this morning, when we take communion together, how you read the Gospels, I want you to see just how all of these things are organized around the Feast of Passover. It's such an important part of theology. It's a festival that dates uh, all the way, but one of the oldest religious festivals around. And we're going to see why today, because what we see in Passover is a picture of Jesus Christ, and we're going to look at that today. Now, it is actually Palm Sunday today, the day that churches around the world are celebrating Palm Sunday. That is the day, of course, that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, presented himself as the king. It was an amazing event that fulfilled many Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, and it started what is known as the Passion Week. This is the final week of Jesus's life, presented himself, and then a good way to read, actually, as we approach Good Friday, is to go through and read day by day what happened on the final days of Jesus's life, and it builds that drama and expectation to you as you get to the event of the crucifixion, one of the most pivotal events in human history, and of course the resurrection on the Sunday. Now, what we are going to do this morning is a little bit of a mash. So we're going to do a bit of Bible teaching, theology about the background. I want to show you how it influences your New Testament reading. We're also going to have a look at some of the events that happen on a Passover Seder a messianic Passover Seder. I'm going to show you how they all point to Christ. So we're going to mix. I'll do a bit of liturgy, a bit of teaching. So hopefully it'll be a, a good mix of everything. And really my hope for this is that it will give you a greater appreciation for the context of the New Testament. What I want is for you to enter the world of Jesus and the apostles, better understand what they were thinking, better understand how momentous this event is, better understand how God clearly ordained history that Jesus Christ would fulfill all of these feasts that he ordained thousands of years before Jesus even existed. And that is one of the re reasons why we're here today. So if you've ever seen a Passover Seder, one of the first steps that you will see 
is the traditional candle lighting ceremony. We've got a menorah here. Traditionally, actually, you wouldn't have a menorah. You just have two big ones, but I didn't have them available. And it is traditional for a lady of the house, the lady of the house, usually in personal homes, to come and light the candles. So I have called on a volunteer. Denise is going to come up and light the candles for us, if you could, Denise. And hopefully there are bigger candles than we had last time, so they will burn, and no one will need to keep an eye on them until we ruin the grand piano throughout this sermon so yeah if you could just light them and then it is traditional to say a hebrew blessing when we do this so usually they would say baruch atar adonai eloheinu melech haolam asher kiddushanu b'mitzvah tav vitzivanu lehadlik neshel yom tov and that is blessed uh, are you O lord our god king of the universe who has sanctified us with your commandments and has commanded us to light the holiday lights or kindle the lights they say and of course, in a messianic Seder, usually they will then say, as the woman begins the Seder and gives light to the Passover table, so it was a woman who begun the redemptive career of Messiah, our Passover, by giving birth to the light of the world. Isaiah 9.2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, as those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Isaiah chapter 9, of course, talking about the ministry of Jesus Christ who would walk and bring this great light to the earth as he did when he proclaimed himself to be the light of the world. Let's look at another couple of things. This is actually a new addition to Passover Seder. You won't find this in the ancient ones, but again, as most of these things do, they all point to Jesus Christ. So this is called the cup of Miriam. You'll often find two cups at a Passover Seder, one the cup of Elijah, and the new one is the cup of Miriam. And what the cup of Miriam is supposed to be highlighting is the role that Jewish women have played in the story of the Exodus, particularly Miriam, of course, being uh, Moses' sister. And if you know the story, she was the one who helped the Jewish people escape during the Exodus, and she was there very involved in that narrative. And of course, for people who believe in Jesus the Messiah, it's no coincidence that we have Miriam, Mary, in the New Testament. It's the same name, Miriam is Mary who obviously gave birth to the Messiah at this time. So what they will typically do is they'll fill the cup with water, and that's significant because most, you'll know if you know Passover, it's everything is wine, but this is water. So it stands out as being different, and it's passed around, everyone drinks from it, and as they do that, they say, this is the cup of Miriam, the cup of living waters. Now, why I find this fascinating is because it's drawing on some Jewish tradition that I'll share with you. A midrash, which is a Jewish interpretation, teaches that during the wilderness wanderings, so this is the time that Israel was going through the desert, they were wandering through the desert, a rock or a well was always following them. This is what the tradition teaches, and it gave them living water. And of course, we see this in the narrative with the hitting of the rock and the water uh, being providing fresh water for the people in the desert. And according to this tradition, that well, that rock, as they call it, was following them around in honor of Miriam, Moses' sister, and her devotion to the Jewish people. So they actually call this the well of Miriam, the well of Mary, basically, the well of Miriam. So both Miriam and the rock, the well of living water, were sources of life and healing to the Israelites during this period of wandering. Now why, now this is obviously a, a quaint piece of Jewish tradition, so why, why am I so interested in it? Because in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul makes reference to it. And he uses it as a stepping stone for a teaching about the Messiah. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 to 4. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Referring to the Exodus there. And all ate the same spiritual food. 
and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. You notice that little unusual phrase there. He's, he's making reference to this tradition that all of these Jewish people would have been very well aware of at this time. And he's saying that life-giving water that was given to you uh, in the Exodus is in fact the same life-giving water that is being given to the Jewish generation of this time. Jesus Christ is the living water. As you know the Gospels, this is why we have not only the I am the light of the world statement, which we've already dealt with, now we have I am the living water statement. So these are not new New Testament things. He is drawing on the Old Testament background to which his audience would have been well aware of. We often import our own meanings to these things and think it's something completely radically new. It's not. He's drawing on Old Testament theology for his Jewish audience there. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Lo, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. John 7, verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. Life-giving water, Jesus Christ, this is what it means to be born again. So that is the cup of Miriam. I like it. It's quite new to a Seder, but it still draws on ancient traditions that teach us something and point towards Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back a little bit here. Before Passover, so Passover is a festival, one of the Jewish festivals that everyone was required to attend. However, the preparations for Passover start before the actual date of the festival, I mean, we have a phrase here called spring cleaning. Have you ever heard that phrase? We need to do your spring cleaning. That comes from Passover. That's actually a Jewish concept. Around March time, you do your spring cleaning. The idea was, before Passover approaches, the Jewish people had to cleanse their house of leaven, as in, because they had to eat with unleavened bread. That was one of the commands uh, of the Passover. Let me read it to you, Exodus 12, verse 15. This is right back at the original first event, the Exodus, when they were taken out of Egypt, the Lord commanded them, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh will be cut off from the house of Israel. So the bread had to be unleavened, that means it wouldn't rise, it was flat, it didn't have leaven in it. And this is interesting because it meant that, and they still do it today at Passover, it's, it's, a, it's a ceremony. Usually someone will hide a piece of leaven somewhere and the kids have to go around and find it and they make like a game of it. But the principle here is, is much more significant for us. The idea of cleansing the house of leaven before we come to the Passover table. Now, biblically, this is very interesting for us. Leaven in the Bible is always a picture of sin. We find that in many places. So Galatians 5, 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, Paul argues as he's making this, uh, about talking about legalism there. Matthew 16, 11, Jesus uses the phrase, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. And in Mark 8, 5, we even have the leaven of Herod. It's a way to refer to false doctrine, to sin, and a number of different things. That is the idea there. The Apostle Paul actually uses this again in a theological argument. This is fascinating. So just, I want you to become aware of how much the New Testament draws on these themes. As you come to the Gospels, this will really help your Bible reading. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. This is the Apostle Paul making the point that I'm making. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
So you notice these Passover themes coming through here. So Paul uses the Passover as an actual application for our spiritual lives here. Now, just as the Jewish people were required to cleanse their house of leaven before the Passover, the idea for us here that Paul is writing is we should cleanse our lives of sin before we come to the communion table because communion comes from Passover, and we're going to get into that a little bit as we go through. And this is why you may have noticed whenever we do a communion, usually the person who's leading will say, I'm going to give you a few minutes now, just to cut, just in quiet time, to come to the Lord to confess your sins. That is the cleansing of the leaven that is taking place, the removal of sin, confessing of sin, before you come uh, to the remembrance of Christ. And this is how this is all fitting together. It's a wonderful, fascinating connection. You might remember in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul even says, whoever eats and eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. That's the point. Examining yourself, it's the same principle that he's looking at there. It's just like the Jewish people would be searching their house, and they had to search high and low. Every single crevice, I mean, if you go through the rabbinical guidelines for that today, it's, it's so strict that no one can really do it. But the idea is completely, you have to search it out completely everywhere in your house. This is it for us too. We come to the Lord, we confess our sins, and he completely removed our sins by the blood of the Lamb. We'll get into that as we go through. That's just one of the Passover connections in the New Testament. Let me share with you another one. This is fascinating now. Remember, this is as we read the Gospels. So just at, as this time, this, this started right back in the days of the Exodus, but it continued all the way through. Let's go to the first century now. When Jesus was here on this earth, he was walking around, uh, and Israel and all the Jewish people were doing this. They were celebrating the Passover. As they were cleansing their houses from leaven, Jesus decided this would be a good time to cleanse his house from leaven. So what do you find? We read this morning, didn't we, this Palm Sunday narrative, the, the beginning of the first week that is connected to everything that goes before it. As soon as Jesus has presented himself as the Messiah, the King, what does he do after that? He goes straight to his father's house, the temple, and he turned over the tables of the money changers. You see, he's cleansing the leaven from his house. This is his Passover going on here, uh, the preparation for Passover. Just like the Jewish people were cleansing the leaven from their house, this was a good time. He went and cleansed the leaven from his house, and he had that famous scene where all the people who were ripping people off and bartering and selling and doing all this stuff in his temple, he goes over and he sips their tables over, and he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And he's justifiably angry at these people ripping everyone off at this time. That is what happens after the Palm Sunday triumphal entry. He cleanses the temple. This is in fitting with the chronology of Passover. Let me give you another Passover connection. Back in Exodus, I'll read to you a couple of verses. Exodus 12, verse 3. This is the original command to Israel. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, you take a lamb for yourselves according to your father's household. And then in verse 4, it says, uh, verse 5 rather, Your lamb shall be unblemished, a male, a year old. You take it from the sheep or the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation will kill it at twilight. So what you see is basically that the lamb was actually selected earlier and then it went through about four or five days of testing of a time where you would examine it to check it was unblemished basically that it was a it was a perfect lamb for the sacrifice and if you obviously you can see where all this is pointing towards but what is very interesting again as you're reading your gospels during this passion week so you start with palm sunday 
This is the time of Passover. People are cleansing their house. Jesus then goes to the temple. He cleanses his house. And then, in, if you're reading the narrative in Matthew 21, in, in just, or any of the Gospels, what do you see happen after that? And this is fascinating when you understand it in the light of Passover. So, right after cleansing the temple, we then see Jesus examined. Just as the lambs were being examined in the house to check if they were, had any spot or blemish on them, as soon as he's done this, we see Jesus being examined. And you get this very quick succession of narrative where all the different groups in Israel challenge Jesus. First, it's the chief priests and the elders in Matthew 21. And they come to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And then he, he sort of answers a question back at them and they don't want to argue with him anymore. They can't find anything wrong with him. And then it says the Pharisees, and all of these things are happening right after in the narrative. The Pharisees come to him along with the Herodians. So the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Herodians, groups of people who do not usually mix. Uh, Herodians were the, the political zealots and the Pharisees were the religious people at this time. Generally, they did not work together, but in their hatred of Jesus Christ, they did work together in this examining. And they asked that question, trying to trap him when they say, is it lawful to give poll tax to Caesar? Is it lawful to pay taxes? Many people ask that question today still, don't they? Trying to get out of paying taxes. And Jesus, remember, he gets the coin. He says, whose image is on it? And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God. And he answers them. And then they are outdone in that, that little episode. They have nothing more to say to him. And then immediately after that, it says that the Sadducees came and questioned him. And they, they come up with this convoluted story about an Old Testament law that says that the wife has to marry the relative in order to keep the family line going. And they invent this story where seven brothers have died and they're asking in, in, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And he turns to them and he says, you don't understand the scripture and you don't understand the resurrection. And he answers them and shuts their mouths too on that one. But all of these things happen in the narrative immediately after he's cleansed the temple in very quick succession during these days, during this time when the lamb was being checked, the lamb was being, see if it could have any fault in it. This is a Pascal, this is a Passover narrative going on behind this. And then when you get to the end of Matthew 22, this whole narrative is ended with the following words. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day ask him another question. What's that basically saying? The lamb was spotless unblemished. Everyone tried, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chiefs, the scribes, to trip him up, to show that he was not the Messiah. None of them could do it. They didn't dare ask him another word. And what did they do from that moment? They started plotting to kill him because he, he, they couldn't answer him in logic or reason. So they tried to kill him. That's what's going on in the Gospels as you read this. It must all be understood in the light of Passover. And hopefully, as we've seen in Paul's arguments now and in the Gospel, just how crucial Passover is to understanding the Bible. Now, let's actually go back and recap the story of the first Passover as we go through and then start to look at the Seder a little bit more. Now, it's been said that the, the most common theme in the Bible is actually the Exodus. And hopefully, again, I, I think that's probably a true statement. All of the terms that we know from the New Testament, slavery, bondage, sacrifice, redemption, freedom, liberation, still terms that people talk about today. All of these things originally come from the Exodus. That's where the language points us to. All the Jewish people at this time would have associated these words with these events that happened. So let's talk about these events. Now, it's not just the Old Testament, though. Before I read, we'll read from Exodus in a moment. But I want to just talk to you about John's Gospel. If you know the Gospel of John... It's a gospel that is organized around the feasts of Israel, probably more than any other gospel. And in fact, 
the whole gospel is structured around three truths of Passover. Three things that are basically related to Passover that are proclaimed by different people throughout the entire narrative. The first one of these Passover truths is proclaimed by a Jewish prophet in the very first chapter. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Okay? Any Jewish person hearing someone talk about the Lamb of God at Passover would have associated that with the Passover lamb, which is exactly right. The second Passover truth was proclaimed by Caiaphas, the high priest, in the middle of John's gospel, where he says in John 11, it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. This gives us the idea that Jesus died in the place of others, the nation Israel, but also for all of us, actually the entire world at that time. The idea of a substitute sacrifice is introduced here. And then the final Passover truth is actually proclaimed by a Gentile. Remember this episode where he says in John 19, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. This is Pilate's statement, obviously, that he also can find no reason to put this man to death, but because the crowds were asking for it, he didn't want to riot on his hands. He washed his hands of the issue and he said, take him, crucify him, I find no guilt in him. So within these three statements, we have the fact that he is the Passover lamb, we have the fact that the lamb is going to die for the sins of the nation, thus the sins of the world too, and we also have the, the acknowledgement that this was an unspotless, blemished lamb who no one could find fault in. Whole thing is Passover here, going on behind the scenes, you see. So let's read Passover a little bit now. Yeah, let's go straight. I'll, I'll read. There's a lot of text here, and I want to read it all to you. So if you have a Bible, let's turn to Exodus 12, please. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, right back into the early life of Israel, they, they went into Egypt during a famine. At this time, their, one of their brothers, Joseph, who they sold into slavery years before, ended up becoming basically the prime minister's right-hand man in Egypt, the pharaoh's right-hand man, and he was in charge of store, storing food for the famine. It's a wonderful story. His brothers were coming to him for famine, not knowing that it was his brother, and eventually he revealed himself to them, and he invited all of his brothers, the Israelites and their father, to come and shelter in Egypt, and we'll look after you. And that's how they ended up going into Egypt. However, Joseph, their brother, died. A new pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph and did not like these now massive group of Israelites being within their midst. And he was worried that there's so many of them now, if they turn on us, they could overthrow us. So they put them into indentured slavery. And these are probably responsible for many of the wonderful buildings that you see around Egypt in the ancient times. This is what they say. But this is what happened here. And then you remember the story. The Pharaoh ordered that all Hebrew children were to be killed by the midwives as soon as they were born. Again, not so different to a lot of stuff that goes on today if you follow the news. But this is what was going on here. It was a way of population control at this stage. Here they didn't want any more Hebrews being born in the empire, in the Egyptian empire. And there was a couple of, a couple of midwives. The Hebrew midwives refused to do that, knowing that life was sacred. And one child they put in a little basket, hid him down the river. His name was Moses. And he ended up being found by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the house of Pharaoh as an Egyptian. And the story goes that God eventually came to him, called him, and told him, you're going to be the one who calls my people out of Egypt. You've probably all seen the, the musical Joseph at some point in your life. These are the events that are coming from that. And the way that this is done is that he sends Moses to Pharaoh with a message, let my people go. Uh, Pharaoh refuses. And through a series of judgments, basically, all the different plagues, what we call the plagues of Egypt, 
if you're familiar with them, they're all based against over showing that God is superior to these false gods that the Egyptians worship. They're all related. And eventually we get to the 10th plague. And this is where we pick up our Passover story. And I'll read the narrative for you now. So that's where we are. So it says in Exodus 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the 10th of this month, they are each to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat and you are to divide the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, its heads, its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt that night, will strike down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will before you, befall you to destroy you and strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14. Now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. And the Jewish people have done that ever since. It's one of those, that's why I say it's one of the longest religious festivals. It takes us all the way back to the time of the Exodus. And that little phrase there, permanent ordinance, that is where we get the term Seder from. It means order of service. And so basically, let me sum up what we're saying here. To escape the judgment of death upon Egypt at this time, they were instructed to take an unblemished lamb, to slay it, and then they would put the blood on the doorposts of their house. And if they do that, they will be unharmed by the judgment. Now, this is very interesting for us. Though. Those of us who are Christians, hopefully you can begin to see the parallels forming here and what God was picturing for us in this event, although many years in the future. Now, like all the feasts of Israel, we know that they commemorate historical events, this one being the Israelites coming out of Egypt, but they also look forward to a future event related to Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul confirms this, Colossians 2. Here he spells this out. He says, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food, drink, respect to a festival or a new moon, which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the Passover here is in many ways a shadow pointing towards a greater reality that we find in Jesus Christ. And that is what we're going to look at as we go through this now. Now, how does this develop in the New Testament? Remember I said slavery, bondage, freedom, liberation, redeem, redemption. These are all Passover themes. And we see those themes all throughout the New Testament. In fact, the language is actually chosen by the writers to make the association between the two things. And if you're not thinking about it, you probably don't pick up on it, but it is. Let me show you. So in Egypt, this is what we have here. Being in Egypt is described as being in the house of slavery. Look at that, Exodus 20, verse 2. 
You see being in Egypt was described as being in the house of slavery. Uh, it's also described as being in bondage there in the Joshua text, out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. So in Egypt, it was the house of slavery and the house of bondage. That's what they were talking about. In the New Testament, these are exactly the same terms that the Apostle Paul uses to describe our situation being in bondage to sin. It's the greater reality in Christ. Let me show you that. Romans 6, verse 20 here. When you were slaves of sin, again, remember, Jewish audience, when you start using these terms, they're thinking of slavery in Egypt. This is what they're referring to. And then he says in Romans 7, 14, too, uh, you were sold into bondage into sin. Sold into bondage is the idea, again, eventually being sold. Joseph sold into uh, slavery, taken to Egypt, and then Egypt becoming, uh, the Israelites becoming bond, bondage in Egypt. All of these are Passover themes that we see uh, being explained here by Paul. Now, also, as you read the Old Testament, you'll find in Deuteronomy that when the Jews were, the Exodus happened, when they were taken out of Egypt, the language used is it said that they were to be redeemed from the house of slavery. Okay, It's very specific language. They are to be redeemed from the house of slavery. And this is very important because, again, when you get to the New Testament, look at this verse, 1 Peter 1, knowing that you were not redeemed, that's the Passover language there, with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, and then look, the blood of what? As of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, the Passover lamb. You see, you see the symbolism being developed here. It's, it's all over the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul makes it much clearer for us in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. He says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed. He, he makes it very clear. And like we've already mentioned, John the Baptist, uh, John, behold, the Lamb of God. This is why you see lambs all over the place at Easter. It's not just because it's springtime and there are lambs. God actually coincided the calendars to work, that he's in charge of all history. That's why he set the times and the seasons. Everything in this world is pointing towards what happened at Passover all those years ago when Christ offered himself as the spotless Lamb of God. It's the most momentous event in history, really. We could say, and it changed the world. It's the day the revolution began. It's the day that he redeemed us from bondage, from slavery to sin by believing in him. Just as the Israelites had to apply the blood to their door, we now apply the blood of Christ to our lives and we are forgiven of our sins and we will no longer see death. You see, this is the gospel here being played out in the Passover all those uh, thousands of years before Jesus Christ. It's an amazing, this is why I always get excited teaching on Passover. It's such an amazing uh, festival that we get to look at. Now, let's jump forward a little bit now, back to the first century or even to today, and I want to look just a little bit at what you see going on in a Passover Seder, that is the meal that Jewish people were commanded to celebrate. If you don't know, the Last Supper, if it's often called, was a, a form of a Passover Seder, and that is where we have our communion instituted, the bread and the wine that we take in church. Uh, it's important that we understand this. So if you've ever seen... Uh, a Passover Seder, you'll notice they usually have a big plate. The, this is nice silver Judaica ones are a luxury of later years, obviously. Back in the first century, they wouldn't have had them quite like this. But you'll see a number of items on there. All the different things there, the egg, the bitter herbs, the sweet paste and the parsley. There's a number of things. I won't go through all of them. I'll just highlight a couple of things. The whole Passover meal is an acted out parable. That's what I want you to get. It's a retelling of the story of Exodus, of their liberation. So thus for us, 
It's a picture also of our future liberation in Christ, and particularly is what Jesus does with it in a moment. So the green herbs, it's usually parsley. Green is the symbol of spring. It's referring to the fact that as Israel was in the spring of their youth, they were spring of nationhood, they called it. They were saved by way of the Red Sea, the Salt Sea. So the idea is in the Passover, you take it and you dip it in some salt water, and then you eat it together to remind you of that part of the story. And then they have the bitter herbs, which is usually horseradish, not creamed horseradish like we would have today. This is raw horseradish, just from the root, like that. And the idea is that you then you take a bit of that and you eat it. It's supposed to bring tears to your eyes, but it's supposed to be that bitter that it brings tears to your eyes. And of course, the idea is, is to remind you of the tears that were shed as they were in slavery, basically, in Egypt. The chasareth there, the sweet paste, this is usually a mixture of apple and cinnamon, and it's, it's, you, you put it together between two bits of unleavened bread, and it's supposed to symbolize the bricks and the mortar. If you know the story of the Exodus, they were told to make the bricks, and one time when Moses said, let my people go, he said, nope, now they have to make double the amount of bricks, and it's that time of intense uh, hardship that they had in Egypt. That's what that reminds us of. Um, the lamb shank, the lamb bone that we have there, obviously, hopefully, the symbolism for the lamb is already, uh, already made that quite clear for you. But this was, again, not just the New Testament. The Old Testament spoke of the Lamb of God. Isaiah 53, verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before his shearers. That famous prophecy of Isaiah about Jesus Christ there. So these are just some of the things, but I want to focus on two things particularly for you here because they hold the most meaning to us. The unleavened bread. We've spoken a little bit about leaven, yeah? Leaven was a symbol of sin, so they were required to use unleavened bread. Now, for them, it was because they had to really be quick. They couldn't wait for the yeast to rise. They had to get out of there, get out of Egypt quick in the history, but it shows much more to us. So if you've ever seen a piece of unleavened bread, it's this. Now, usually, traditionally, we, we always used this for our communion. That was, we switched to these little things because of COVID. Practically, they're very good. They're nice and easy to clean up, but traditionally, I, I do think it should be celebrated with unleavened bread like this, and I'll show you why. I don't want to get legalistic about it, but you ruin the theological significance. And hopefully by the end of this, you'll understand what I mean by that. So this is unleavened bread. They call it matzah. As you can see, it is flat. So if you, if you turned it on its side, it's very, very thin. It is striped, you can see there, and it is also pierced. If I had a piece and I held it in front of the candles, you could see all the holes in it and the light behind it. That is what is going on. And usually this is done at the Seder. You will hold it up, a messianic Seder anyway, hold it up in front of you. And they will say, even so the Messiah was unleavened, that is, he is sinless. Even so the Messiah was striped, that is, by way of the Roman whip. And even so the Messiah was pierced, that is, by the nails in his hands and his feet and the spear in his side. Concerning the stripes, it is written, John 19, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Concerning the piercing, it is written, Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the weeping of a firstborn. That's when the Jewish people finally recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is the living bread. Remember the, all these statements. So we've seen, I am the light of the world, We've seen, I am the living waters. And remember the other statement, I am the bread of heaven. Yes, John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came out of heaven. 
If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread also which I give you is my flesh. Passover again. All of these dramatic statements of Jesus are all related to the theology of Passover. Now, let's see a little bit deeper about this bread here that we see. I want to talk to you about a ceremony, the ceremony of the Afikomen. If you don't follow anything, follow this part and understand it. It's hugely significant for what we do when we take communion. On a Passover Seder, you'll see a little bag. It's called a matzatash, a, a bread bag, basically. But it's very unusual. It has three different compartments in it, three different sleeves. And they will take one of these pieces and they'll put one in each sleeve. Now, there's different ways that the Jewish people explain this. Of course, Messianic people, I believe, who believe in Messiah have a much better explanation of what this is pointing to. During the meal, the Seder, at the beginning of the meal, significantly, what you will find happen, and this is a very ancient tradition, the ceremony of the Afikomen, they will take the bag, the, the officiator will take the bag, he will remove from the middle pocket that piece of matzah bread. He will then break it in half, put half of it back. He'll take the half that's broken, he'll wrap it in a white uh, linen that he has there, and he will then place it underneath the table. And then they'll forget about it for a while, and they'll carry on with their ceremony. And then they'll have their meal, and then after the meal, at a point in the ceremony, the officiator will go under the table and he'll bring out this piece of bread and he'll unwrap it. And this is really quite the amazing part because we, we can follow in the gospel narratives when this was all happening. It was after the meal that this piece of bread was taken from that pocket. So think about what you have here, okay? So you have three pieces of sinless bread, basically, unleavened bread together. This points to us the triune nature of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The middle piece is removed from the place of fellowship with the Godhead, taken down to the table of men, broken, then placed underneath the table into the grave, and at a point, wrapped in white linen, at a point in the ceremony, it is brought back up onto the table and unwrapped. And there you see the symbolism here. Jesus Christ came to this earth as Godhead, the Son. He was broken on the cross. He was buried. And then we have the resurrection. And then what Jesus did, actually at this ceremony, let me just read to you the text. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 25. Uh, it says, For I received from the Lord, this is Paul writing, but speaking of Passover, I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, why do I highlight this? He did this after the supper, which was the exact moment in the ceremony where you would be doing this with the afikomen. So that thing, that is that piece of bread that is brought up from the table is then broken by the officiator and given to those around the table. This is what Jesus is doing. So when he instituted communion for us, he did it with this piece of bread that he said is my body that pictured being removed from the fellowship of the Godhead, being coming down to earth, being broken, being buried, being resurrected, and then being the life for all of the feast people who feast at his table. A wonderful picture of himself there. That is why it was sinless. That is why it was unleavened. And that is why I believe communion should be taken with unleavened bread because it continues the picture that Jesus was forming for us. 
all these things, striped, pierced, unleavened. This is what the, the picture that we have here going on. It's just a wonderful part of the ceremony, and this is what is basically happening as you read the Gospels too. That is the point that Jesus broke the bread and gave it to them. Obviously, he was officiating. Now, let's add on to that a little bit more about the cup there that we just read. On a Passover Seder, there are four cups. A cup of blessing, a cup of plague, a cup of redemption, and a cup of praise. You'll do different things with them throughout the ceremony. It's that third cup, again, that I want to focus on. It was the most important cup. It represented the blood of the Passover lamb. It's called the cup of redemption. It was this cup that you had after the meal. So think about what I just said. I read in 1 Corinthians. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood as often as you drink it. It wasn't just any cup of wine. Like we, he wasn't just pouring a little jug out and saying this is that. It was the third cup of the Passover. It was the cup of redemption, the cup that symbolized the blood of the Passover lamb that celebrated their exodus from Egypt. And he is now saying that is actually pointing to me, the cup of redemption, the Passover lamb. I am the ultimate fulfillment of Passover. And it is now my blood that will release you from slavery to sin. And there's that cup that he instituted our communion service with. Luke 22 confirms this to us again. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus now uses the cup of redemption to point to the greater redemption that he offered them. One other interesting thing about this, the Mishnah, which is Jewish, uh, the Jewish writings, they record an unusual oddity about this cup. The cup was red wine, but it was also to be mixed with water. Again, very unusual thing to do. You didn't do that with any of the other cups, but it was mixed with water to try and make it have the consistency of blood, obviously. Um, that's the idea. Sorry, warm water it was mixed with. That's, that's the idea, to give it so you get that. This points to us. Do you remember a detail that's recorded for us in the Gospels? John 19. The soldiers come up to Jesus on the cross. They see that he was already dead, so they don't break his legs. They take a spear and they jab it into his side. And then what does John record for us? Immediately blood and water came out of his side. Again, John here just emphasizing the fact that the Passover lamb has now been sacrificed for the sins of the world. So this is what, really what I find amazing. It is with these two items, that bread that has gone through that whole journey of coming down, being broken, being buried, being resurrected, being distributed for the people is what we are to take communion with. And then the cup of redemption that symbolized the blood of the Passover lamb now being fulfilled is now the blood of the new covenant that was made by the final Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, our Passover, who has been sacrificed. And then the cup of praise is the fourth cup. This is an interesting one. This points forward to the day. Jesus said, I will, I will not drink of that cup until I drink it with you in my kingdom. What he's basically saying is here, no, no, Passover is not actually complete yet. That's why all these festivals are still important to us, even as Gentile believers, even if you're not Jewish, all of these things point us. He is saying, if you ever read how the Messianic kingdom starts, we'll do that when we get to the end of Revelation, it starts with a feast. And that is the ultimate fulfillment of Passover, when Jesus will once again be able to drink this fourth cup of praise, because the time of the kingdom will be a time of universal praise. So you see all of these things. You see your whole Bible links together with the theology of Passover. It is one of the most amazing feasts. And then at the end, you'll find this little uh, liturgy. The service thus performed will be acceptable to God. 
The order of the Passover is now accomplished as prescribed according to all its formalities and customs as we had the privilege to arrange it. O oh, may we also merit the actual observance thereof. O oh, pure dweller on high, raise up your people of whom it is said, who can number them. O oh, hasten to lead the shoots of your plant and bring the redeemed to Zion with a joyful song. And then they'll say, Lashana haba be Yerushalayim. In a coming year, in Jerusalem. They always look forward to that. Again, the kingdom is what they're talking about there, the time when the king returns. And that is the Passover, and that is how it affects all of us today. Now, one question that comes from this, obviously, for us. The Israelites in Egypt needed the blood of the Passover lamb to escape death. The teaching of the New Testament is that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all broken his law. That means we are all sinners. That means we are all separated from the life-giving power of God. Death is what we get from that. We separated from God. There is one way, however, that we will not see death, but we will go to be with our Lord and be resurrected with him, and that is by applying the blood of the Passover lamb to our hearts. This is a way of saying that you accept the sacrifice Jesus made for you, confess your sins, ask him to be your Lord and Savior, and he will be your Lord, and one day you will feast with him at that table in the kingdom. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.